Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, December 27th. And now we owe to the American people our very best to deliver on their faith, to forever reach for the more perfect union, the glorious horizon that our founders promised. Among the most shameful of this committee's findings was that President Trump sat in the dining room off the Oval Office, watching the violent riot at the Capitol on television. For hours, he would not issue a public statement instructing his supporters to disperse and leave the Capitol, despite urgent pleas from his White House staff and dozens of others to do so. All too often, a person enters a hospital in crisis and gets discharged prematurely because their current behavior is no longer as alarming as it was when they were admitted. A few of the sound bites of 2022. This hour, we heard Nancy Pelosi, who, of course, left her post, is leaving her post in the new Congress as leader of the Democratic Conference in the House, Liz Cheney on the January 6th committee, and Mayor Eric Adams. And, of course, there was so much more. It has been a year. So let's talk about it. With us for a special year in review hangout are three very special guests, Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes a column on life in Biden's Washington and co-anchors their podcast, The Political Scene, and she is co-author with Peter Baker of one of the important political books of this year, The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. Christina Greer, Fordham University political science professor, co-host of the podcast FAQ NYC, host of the Blackest Questions podcast on the GRIO, and author of Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream, and Ozzie Paber, a national reporter for the Washington Post, covering campaigns and breaking political news, Ozzie previously of the New York Times, and oh yeah, the WNYC newsroom, that Ozzie Paber. Susan, Christina, Ozzy, thanks for giving up an hour of your lives to join us for a year in review, and welcome back to WNYC. So, Ozzy, here's a question as we approach the second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, and we heard Liz Cheney there. Regardless of what happens to Donald Trump as an individual, did the events of 2022 make us safer from the kind of coup he tried to stage, I'm thinking January 6th committee presentations, and midterm election results as well, especially. Boy, I was really hoping you wouldn't ask this question. Um, and I think it it's always hard to sort of examine historical moments when they're happening in real time. I think what developed was that we became more aware, but I think the voting suggests something that's not as as not as a direct line as we would like to think democracy works. Um, uh, people who ran against anti-democratic candidates, people who embraced January 6th rioters, people who embraced the big lie, yes, many of them lost 
their competitive races, but the the margins were not as large as one would expect. Um, as we saw back in 2016, certain certain topics and certain kinds of rhetoric that I may have thought were disqualifying for public office clearly are not to many other voters. Um, now, it, it, it was sort of notable that the people who espoused the big lie that Donald Trump was somehow robbed of his victory in 2020, many of those election deniers conceded their own races, but the amount of votes that they racked up suggests something that is hard to wipe away. Um, so I'm, I am slightly more hopeful, but I, I think it just made us more aware of, of how fragile democracy can be. Christina Greer, same question. Yeah, I agree with Ozzy, Brian. You know, there were definitely some, some wins for Democrats against uh, folks who definitely supported uh, this domestic terrorist coup, insurrection, whatever you choose to call it. But those margins were not significant. I mean, these were in many ways squeakers across the country. And so I think the fact that we still have so many sitting Republicans who support uh, the actions of insurrectionists on January 6th, who refuse to call them insurrectionists, who just call them patriots or excited individuals who happen to defend our nation's capital, and they're not uh, understanding or believing uh, the reality of that day where they were calling to, you know, hang Mike Pence, and we saw flags with um, the Confederate flag, we saw flags with swastikas. I mean, this was a, a much greater insidious act uh, in literally in the, the halls of our government. Uh, and so actually, Brian, I am quite worried. I mean, the fact that the evidence has been meticulously laid out for the American public, and we still have so many millions of Americans who do not want to believe it, who refuse to believe what they have just been uh, explained, uh, makes me quite worried for the future of our democratic process. Susan Glasser, want to pick it up? Yeah, look, Brian, I think this is a, you know, this is important and really the the sort of the enduring political question of the last few years, which is, you know, the embrace by radicalism of radicalism by the Republican Party when it comes to explicitly challenging sort of a pillar of our system. It's not a policy dispute, uh, you know, to have one party that has endorsed essentially uh, uh, an attack on the peaceful, lawful transfer of power. And Trump, you know, he was an outlier in many respects as the president of the United States, but the, 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 the most salient way in which he was an outlier was his refusal uh, to accept his defeat and his seeking to overturn an election. We've never had any president of any party in our entire history who's done that. And the Republican Party has continued to embrace that as a, as a pillar. Uh, they won the House of Representatives narrowly, more narrowly than expected. And I, in some ways, Democrats have done such an excellent job of, you know, kind of reframing the election results around their better than expected performance defying history. Uh, but the bottom line is that not only did Republicans win control of the House, but it's worth pointing out to people that two thirds of the House Republican Conference back in 2021 voted to uh, not to certify the results of the election within hours of the attack on the Capitol, literally walking over the shattered glass of the Capitol in order to cast those votes. And so I think that for me, when you look at results in uh, many of these key races this year, uh, something like Herschel Walker, the Republican lieutenant governor of Georgia, the Republican said that mm -hmm. Herschel Walker was 
perhaps the most unqualified Senate candidate in the history of the Republican Party. Uh, And yet he not only came close enough to force that race to a runoff, but even when he was defeated, it was really by quite a narrow margin. There was only uh, one Senate race this year, in fact, uh, that uh, went against the uh, results in the presidential election two years earlier, you know, which suggests a country that's so fundamentally divided by partisanship that Republican partisans are willing to overlook even attacks on, uh, you know, a pillar of our constitutional system. So I think we're in the middle of the crisis still, is the bottom line. Well, Christina Greer, on that partisanship, Joe Biden ran on being a post-Trump healer. Remember that? Who understands voters of both parties. Do you think he's reduced polarization in any meaningful way in 2022 or the two years of his presidency? I think he's tried, Brian, but the Republican Party that Joe Biden has been accustomed to working with and negotiating with no longer exists. Uh, I think that party is gone. Uh, We've definitely seen that, you know, Donald Trump has taken over uh, what used to be a faction of the party and moved them so far to the right. I think Joe Biden is trying to have good faith conversations uh, with colleagues who used to come to the table with an open heart and an open mind and put American citizens at the forefront of their conversation. But we see so many Republicans are afraid to go against uh, not just Donald Trump, but his supporters, especially in primaries. And so even as the president tries to think about policy prescriptions for all the American people, when he talks about inflation or gas prices or COVID, he's not talking about Democrats. He's talking about what's good for the nation. But as we've seen time and time again, the Republican Party uh, will literally uh, drive this country into the ground and vote against their own interests just to stick it to the Democrats. We're seeing this with water infrastructure policy. We're seeing this with with COVID policies. We're seeing this with job creation policies. We're seeing this with education. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I think that, sadly, the Republican Party of of even 10 to 15 years ago uh, no longer exists. Well, let me follow up on that and how far you think this may go. Christina, you know, one of the things about 2022 is that several books came out about civil wars and warning that the U.S. has the conditions for the potential, at least, for civil war. How concerned are you about that? I am concerned, Brian, but I think it will take a a different form than what I think a lot of people are accustomed to. Now, yes, I would say that January 6th was a shot across the bow when you look at people who are you know, relatively armed and attacking the Capitol. That, to me, uh, is a warning shot or several warning shots. When you have you know, media outlets that don't believe in facts or truth, I think that's uh, sowing more seeds of dissension and civil war. When you don't have two robust political parties uh, uh, you know, who can come to the table with good faith policy prescriptions, I think that sows more seeds of a civil war. But you know, does it necessarily mean that everyone takes up arms? Possibly. I mean, we've seen that Republicans are armed to the teeth in many ways, uh, not just with gun policies across the country, even after we see children and babies slain in their own classrooms and Republican lawmakers refusing uh, to move the needle forward with any uh, gun legislation and gun protections for us. And so on the one side, we have one political party that believes in arming themselves uh, and taking up arms to get what they want. And the other political party is trying to come to the table with ideas, albeit not perfect ideas, but ideas nonetheless. So if we are moving towards a civil war, I don't necessarily think it takes the same form as we saw in the 1800s, but I do think that we are definitely 
uh, dipping our toe in, in that in that well in many ways uh, that's quite concerning to me, especially if we zoom out 30,000 feet and we look at uh, the education system and the efforts of Republicans to erase history, uh, not just about immigration and U.S. chattel slavery and Native peoples who were on this land before we got here, but our, our history of, of civil war in the past. Uh, and how we have evolved as a nation and continue to do so in a racial and economic space. Uh, I think if you, you know, if you don't educate the future populace, how can you avoid making the same mistakes uh, that you did in the past? Some more coming in on Twitter on what 2022 will be remembered for or should be remembered for or underreported stories of the year. One listener writes, New York Democrats locally should remember 2022 as the year we saw disastrous, no strategy, leadership, terrible results. Another listener writes, the most underreported story of 2022 is the climate crisis for the simple reason that it's the overarching issue of our time for the foreseeable future. Uh, Another listener writes, it's still COVID. Everyone knows people who caught it. For those who lost family, the fear is very real. The mass trauma is long. Another listener writes, 2022, known for white backlash after perceived gains by people of color and women. Again, the third reconstruction, writes another listener. And and let me just acknowledge that if there's one topic that's coming up the most frequently uh, on Twitter from you as a story of the year, folks, and on the phones, Heads up, Ozzy. I know your latest article for the Washington Post is about George Santos. And just to reflect, to refresh our listeners' memory about what's happening here, uh, Congressman-elect George Santos, Republican from parts of Queens and Nassau County, admitted this weekend after the New York Times revealed a lot of this stuff that he didn't graduate from college, as he had claimed, said he went to Baruch, never went to Baruch, didn't work for Citigroup or Goldman Sachs, as he claimed. Didn't own a dozen different properties like he claimed. Apparently, he owns no properties, but is looking to buy a house. He told the New York Post, doesn't live in the district. He was elected to represent. Lives with his sister in Huntington. That's not in the district. And really isn't Jewish. Part of his identity uh, for his campaign was that he's a Latino, Jewish, gay Republican. Other than that, he's mostly who he says he is. Ozzy, how did he get away with this for two election cycles? He ran in 2020 against Tom Swasey in that district. The Democrats didn't figure it out. The media didn't figure it out. It happened again now. uh, And the Times somehow figured it out after the election. How did he get away with it? So I think the answer to that is is also sort of represented in in the feedback we're getting from callers uh, and people on Twitter about what's the main story of 2022. Um, During a campaign, you know, candidates, operatives, and even reporters and editors try to see not only what is true and accurate, but what is the main story that people need to hear and understand. And you're right, due diligence was not done for for two election cycles, which is not great if you are an Apple researcher, if you're an opponent, (laughs) um, if you are someone who is dedicated to reporting on on these elections. But I also think that the public voters, uh, earnest reporters who were asking themselves, what what does the public really need to see and understand? Oftentimes it's 
Who's going to help with the economy? Are my streets going to get safer? Is someone going to plow the streets? The uh, a, the general public, uh, like a, a voter's first question isn't always, is this person's resume exactly as they say it is? Right. And that's not, to, that's not to excuse it, but it's just to say it's not always the first question in mind. But Matt, now I think heading into 2023, one of the first questions I may be asking people are, can you prove what you just said with receipts? Yeah, I guess after that. Um, Susan, can you name one important Democratic and one important Republican policy idea of this year? We've just been talking about how some of the biggest stories of the year are not policy. The big lie is not policy, as you referenced before. George Santos making up most of his biography is not policy. So name one important Democratic or Republican and Republican policy idea of this year, locally or nationally, and, you know, excluding election denial, which is not policy. Which was one important Democratic and one important Republican policy uh, idea of this year for you covering Washington for The New Yorker? Uh, well, you know, thank you, Ryan. I'm going to actually go with and rather than or, because I think part of, you know, this moment we're living in is this extraordinary polarized partisan moment. But in some ways, the policy of the year that was the most surprising and uh, was one that was overwhelmingly bipartisan, and that is the extraordinary amounts of support that both Democrats and Republicans have offered to Ukraine uh, in the war against Russia. And this, by the way, was a surprise in the sense that uh, you do have a vocal, uh, what you might even call pro-Putin faction in the Republican Party led by Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson. Uh, and yet, uh, again, you're looking at uh, an enormous uh, amount of uh, something like more than $40 billion in, in one package alone earlier this year. And it's a significant shift as well, uh, because it represents uh, you know, a kind, a level of uh, not only military commitment, but uh, also uh, um, economic commitment. Um, you know, people may not realize this, but the United States is uh, through USAID and others essentially uh, helping to fund the payroll for the Ukrainian uh, government as Russia has attacked all of its normal, you know, economy. Uh, turning the electricity back on in that country, and transforming the, the security situation in the world. Uh, if you had said uh, a year ago that Sweden and Finland would abandon decades, uh, and in some cases centuries, of neutrality in mm. Europe to join uh, NATO, uh, you just that would not have been a credible statement. It's a remarkable uh, transformation. And it, re it represents, by the way, something we haven't yet mentioned, but I do think is extremely significant because 2022 was also the year that nuclear uh, anxiety, superpower nuclear anxiety returned to the world since mm. for the first time in a serious way that I can remember since I was a kid in, in the 1980s. Uh, you know, this is a huge shift and we have all in many ways become victims of uh, a form of nuclear blackmail that uh, Putin has been using, essentially threatening uh, the West to, you know, not to become too involved in the conflict uh, by saying that if he, if it does, he will go nuclear. And I, you know, that level of uh, uh, threatening of the use of nuclear weapons is something uh, that is obviously we haven't seen since since the darkest days of the Cold War. And I think it's a major 
shift uh, in our politics for a long time to come. But to your specific point, I just think that that is a policy, mm-hmm. a bipartisan policy mm-hmm. that you wouldn't have bet on a year ago. Ozzy, one important Democratic and one important Republican policy idea of the year. Uh, if I'll, I'll I'll point out to just one um, <laughs> as opposed to two, but it's experiments with free public transit, um, huh. which which I find really fascinating. I know uh, the effort is, is getting underway here in Washington D.C., and it's been happening in, in a handful of other cities, and that really I think reduces on some level. Um, the pressure of enforcement that some politicians have said unfairly burden uh, low-income residents. And it also, I think, stands in contrast to the conversation about decriminalizing um, marijuana and other substances, because when you you make free public transit, you can sort of just stand back and let people enter. Whereas when you decriminalize uh, a substance and then seek to tax and regulate it, there's a need to protect the regulated uh, market um, for health and fi- financial reasons. And that means actually being mindful of what may be circumventing that regulated market. And it doesn't always reduce the kind of enforcement that people assume that language means. Really interesting. Christina, same question. One important Democratic, one important Republican policy idea from 2022. We're not completely post-policy, hmm. right? <laughs> I hope not, Brian. I really do. Uh, you know, as, as always, I am impressed with Democrats' willingness to to put money into infrastructure, uh, just because we know that across the country, so much of our infrastructure is crumbling. Uh, with Republicans, uh, you know, I really struggle, Brian, because in many ways, I just see them as a party of, of obstinance and a party of no. Uh, and some of my concerns about divided government that we'll see uh, as this new congressional uh, set of legislators is sworn in, makes me a little bit worried about whether or not we can get anything done, especially with uh, the use of the filibuster. We'll continue in a minute. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. And yet, I've gone decades, decades without a war, the first president to do it for that long a period. The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. A few of the sound bites of 2022 as our end of year hangout continues. We heard Zelensky in Congress just the other day. It's an investment. It's not charity. When the U.S. taxpayers help to support their war effort. We heard Donald Trump. He actually said that. Uh, that he was the only president not to have a war for decades. Of course, he was in office for only four years. He said that as he announced his 2024 run just recently. And President Biden saying the pandemic is over. Yes, he actually said that in September, even admitting that we have more work to do. So I think, well, next year in Washington be much different from this year. There was already mostly a stalemate because of Republican power over the filibuster. So will next year actually be much different? It'll be a little different in the sense that we, uh, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, will not be leading the Democratic conference, but she will be replaced by Hakeem Jeffries, a congressman from Brooklyn, 
who I'm sure uh, listeners are very familiar with. But I think it, it'll be different in another respect that there that with Republicans in charge of the House, there will be more uh, investigations um, and expect to hear the name Hunter Biden uh, a lot. Mm. Christina, how do you see the pandemic era still most affecting our country? Uh, I'm sure all our eyes got wide when Joe Biden said on 60 Minutes in September, that soundbite that we just played, the pandemic is over. Oh, Brian, I almost passed out uh, because the pandemic absolutely is not over. You know, as an educator, I know it's not over. As someone who uses public transport every day, I know it's not over. Uh, So I I think the conversations about what COVID looks like as we live with COVID, uh, you know, will become of the utmost importance. But I think uh, over the course of 2023, Brian, I think what we'll really see are conversations about long-term COVID and what that means for so many families not just in the health space, but also in an economic space as they struggle to pay for some of the effects of long-term COVID since we're absolutely not done with this pandemic. Susan, you want to take a shot at that one? You know, Brian, I am really struck by the fact that there is a power still in in words, and the words of the president matter. And, uh, you know, it, it very likely is one of the contributing reasons why there have been such a low uh, adoption of uh, people getting their booster shots, even though you need a booster, according to uh, public health experts, in order uh, to be as covered as possible for the current variants of COVID. Uh, you know, even people, uh, millions and millions of people who received their first and second uh, uh, shots have not received their boosters, including very vulnerable members of the population. The percentage is extremely low, uh, number one. Number two, we're still dealing with something like an average of 300 deaths a day in the United States. And it's, it's remarkable that people, including apparently President Biden, have decided to accept that uh, as simply a, a, a baked-in cost at this point of uh, going on uh, with our lives. And it's, it's, it's really a fascinating example. I'm sure it's one that historians will, will study for many years to come about uh, 2022. So I, I'm glad that we're spotlighting that this year. Christina, 2020 became a year of reckoning with persistent racial inequality more than most years after the murder of George Floyd. And I think also in 2020, everyone seeing who the essential workers were, quote unquote, who couldn't work from home when COVID started. Did we make progress toward equality in 2022? Oh, I think in some spheres with some people, yes. I think that a lot of Americans saw America and through a different set of lenses, which was very helpful. You know, I'm not going to put a judgment call as to whether it was too late or very late, but at least many Americans started to see what was happening to not just their neighbors, the people who they interact with on a daily basis. I think sadly, Brian, on the other hand, uh, there are a lot of Americans who feel more emboldened in their racist tendencies. I mean, you know, because we have smartphones and we can record these interactions that African-Americans and Asian-Americans, Latino-Americans and LGBTQ plus Americans have been saying for decades, this has been happening to me in particular spaces where people just feel the need to deputize themselves uh, to tell me that I don't belong here. Uh, And that is very worrisome just because we have had a former president and now a political party uh, that has said that this type of behavior is sanctioned and okay and in many ways encouraged. So, As these divisions, going back to your earlier question about Joe Biden trying to bring the country together, 
we do have a lot of Americans, especially specifically white Americans, who are better understanding the foundation of this country that has been rooted in white supremacy and anti-blackness uh, and patriarchy and capitalism and all the ways that uh, subjugate particular members of this, this country. But we also have, uh, and I'm not going to say 50%, but a large percentage of this nation uh, that believes in the opposite. And they refuse to read a book. They refuse to recognize history. They refuse to see uh, how, many, how so many people in this country have not been treated fairly or equitably historically and also in present day. And their behavior is showing uh, their lack of respect for their, their fellow Americans. And they continue to come in on Twitter, the stories of the year or the underreported stories of the year. Listener writes, out of control, Supreme Court, conservative majority, rampant anti-democratic gerrymandering, and GOP attacks on voting rights. These must be addressed in 2023. Someone else writes, Still about George Santos. They keep coming in about George Santos. Lying on your resume is grounds for termination in any position. It's a deal breaker, an instant disqualifier. And someone else, we'll go to the back page here for this one, writes, the ridiculous amounts of money being paid sports figures and sports broadcasters. Ridiculous. Can you think of something in the news this year that much of the public gets wrong or misunderstands? Susan, anything pop right to mind? Uh, yeah, look, I do think, Brian, that, um, uh, you know, we're so eager to place narratives on things, um, y- you know, that the reality of essentially a 50-50 country that is so deeply divided, we keep looking for proof that the pendulum has sw- swung dramatically one way or the other. Uh, and I think we're just we're just wrong about that. There's a pretty fixed minority of the country it is a minority of the country that uh has supported trump and trumpism uh you know for years now it really hasn't changed the january 6th committee didn't change it we're so eager to you know sort of declare up or down uh results from uh the news cycle uh that we don't look at how how fixed that 40 percent of the country is and how divided uh it is it really hasn't changed mm-hmm. uh, uh very at all so we're wrong to look for some kind of resolution. Ozzy, something in the news this year that much of the public gets wrong or misunderstands? Uh, watching vote counts on television is not like watching a foot race. <laughs> so when numbers go up and down, it's not necessarily because anyone is doing something. It's about you're watching a bureaucratic process. You're not watching the Olympics of democracy. That's a good one. And the absentee ballots sometimes get counted days after that election night uh, TV blitz. Christina, something much of the public gets wrong? Uh, I would say the historical roots of race and racism when it comes to almost every policy prescription that we've ever had in the United States. And as we see education, housing, infrastructure, climate change, all of the the big issues of 2022, if we sort of go back several decades, we can see sort of concerted efforts um, that are rooted in race and racism in this nation. Last one. We'll go around one more time. Name one question you expect to be following closely in 2023. Ozzy? Can you prove what you just said, Congress member? That could be my question. <laughs> Can you prove about having graduated from college, little things like that? Christina, one, qu- one question you expect to be following closely in 2023? I hate to sound like a broken record, but what is our plan to protect our watershed in the United States? Susan, one question you'll be asking in 2023? 
Look, uh, we're getting very close to a decision uh, from President Biden one way or the other about whether he's going to run for re-election. Either way, mm. uh, it's it's very consequential. Either he's going to be uh, running as the oldest president uh, uh, ever in American history and, and seeking a second term, at the end of which he would be 86 years old, or uh, he's going to be stepping aside and leaving what looks to be a very wide open Democratic field at a time uh, when, you know, Trump is running again, I, I think it's going to be uh, a really big few months uh, and a consequential few months in American politics. And that, folks, is our year in review hangout with Susan Glasser from The New Yorker, Christina Greer from Fordham, and Ozzie Pabra from The Washington Post, and many of you who called in and tweeted. Guests, thanks to all of you very much for your thoughts and opinions and collected wisdom and your time on this December 27th. Ozzy, Susan, Christina, thank you all so much and Happy New Year. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.